Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Welcome to the Women's Hoops and Talks podcast, the What Podcast, where we are elevating the voice of women in basketball. We are part of the Almighty Baller Radio Network, and you can find the Women's Hoops and Talks podcast as part of the Blazers Edge podcast feed. I'm Tara, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Kendall. And today, we have a guest who's going to join us for our entire episode. I'm really happy to welcome Caitlin Cooper. She is a writer for Indie Cornrows which is the Indiana Pacers blog at SB Nation. So much to talk about with the playoffs coming that we thought we would just invite uh, Caitlin on to speak with us for the whole time, and we're looking forward to hearing more about what's going on in the East. So welcome to the show, Caitlin. Hey, thanks for having me on. And it's also great to see talk to you again, Kendall. <laughs> nice to talk to you, too. <laughs> so let's go ahead and learn a little bit about our guest first. Caitlin, how did you become involved in basketball? Like, what's your what's your background with sports? Is it something did you play, or have you just always been interested in it? What what brought you to where you are today? Right. So, I mean, I played, but I think what really connected me to the game is I kind of I've made this comparison before, but if people have watched the movie Remember the Titans, I was a mm-hmm. lot like Hayden Panettiere's character in that movie. My dad coached high school boys basketball in Indiana for over twelve years, and that whole time I, I would go along for scouting trips. I took stats. I ran the clock at summer league games. I helped with playbooks. I'd go into open gyms. So I really just couldn't get enough of learning about how coaches strategize for games. Like if there was a hospitality room at a sectional tournament or something, I wanted to sneak in there, not for the food, but to hear about, you know, how are they planning to guard, you know, I use next top recruit or whatever it may be. So that's really what got me involved in the game. And I think that if people read my work at Indy Cornrows, hopefully they'll kind of see that I'm passionate about sharing what little I've come to know about the game in that way and learning about it kind of in basketball's heartland here in Indiana. So. Wow, I had no idea that you grew up, uh, you know, the daughter of a coach so involved. It makes perfect sense, though, because like you said, I've read your writing and it's very detailed and it's very analytical and it really focuses on different strategies that teams try to employ to either slow each other down or, you know, get get the jump on the other team. That makes perfect sense now. 
Uh, but you said you did play basketball as well. What was your position? Right. So I, I mainly played forward. When I was growing up, I was a little bit taller than some of the people in my age in junior high. So I would play inside. And then when once I got in high school, my coaches kind of saw what I could do dribbling. So I kind of was more on the perimeter. So when I was on varsity and JV, so. So did you have a signature move? A signature move. Well, I, I liked being able to, if I had like a bigger person guarding me in the post, I kind of liked using, I would work on post moves a lot. So I kind of liked going with up and under moves and just, you know, seeing if I could beat a bigger person to the basket or fake them out or that, that type of stuff was always fun to me. So did you play uh, recreationally? Did you play at a, a higher level? Did you have aspirations to play in college or did you play in college? No, 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 never in college. I would say in my my area I was probably fairly average. So, what are some of the things that you learned about sports and kind of about the world growing up in a family that was so obviously connected to basketball? Yeah, so I mean, I think that part of that was it was a little bit of a blessing because I was brought up in that and and. I was kind of inducted into, you know, a bit of a boys club when it came to sports, just simply because I was the coach's daughter that people would kind of listen and be like, Oh, you know, she knows sports. But the flip side of that was also that I remember one summer I was running clock at a summer league game and there was a rival coach who didn't know who I was. And it was kind of a hands on deck thing. And he was refereeing a game and the, our team went to roll the ball in the court and he was kind of demonstrative with me like, okay, wait, wait, like, I wouldn't know that you shouldn't start the clock before the person touched the ball. And, you know, at the time, I just thought, you know, that's kind of funny. And then, you know, later on in the day, there was two players' younger brothers running the clock who were much younger than me, and he didn't have that same response to them. So it kind of was an eye-opening moment of, like, you know, do people think that I know sports, or is my authority my own, or did they only just think that I knew sports because my dad's the coach? So, you know, there's kind of that balancing dynamic where it was really a blessing, and I wouldn't ever say it was a curse because my dad always fostered all of my opinions and was very much the type of man that would welcome a daughter's opinion equal to that as a son's. But it was kind of an eye-opening point to what, you know, how the world perceives women's voices in sports sure so you must have growing up in indiana you must have grown up a pacers fan is that a safe yeah. assumption yes and you know here in indiana a lot of i think i think people assume because it's a basketball state that it's mostly that there would be so many pacer fans but i think that it's kind of more of a college basketball state so it's a little bit more unique to find or at least in my area, it was unique to find people that were really hardcore Pacer or NBA fans. So, but yes, I was always a Pacer fan. So kind of, um, kind of jumping into kind of more recent stuff going on in the NBA, going, being a Pacers fan, how, what do you kind of think of what's been happening with the Pacers, um, especially in the last two years and especially this season with all the changes that have happened? Oh, it's, it's been a revelation for me. Like I've said this a couple of times, but I've had to eat so much crow just you wouldn't have expected this amount of a turnaround after what all happened last summer. And, you know, a lot of that, I think you have to credit to the amount of a gigantic leap that Victor Oladipo took over the summer and just came back and really embraced the city. And the contrast of that with the way that Paul George left, it's just, I just wouldn't have seen it coming. Obviously I didn't. People know what my preseason takes were, so I don't need to rehash them. 
So being a Blazers podcast, we tend to talk about the Western Conference a little more. Um, but obviously, the Eastern Conference has been having a lot of stuff going on. They are always kind of considered the lesser of the two, the weaker conference. Um, what is it kind of like being a fan of a team in the Eastern Conference and hearing all of those things? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think that the Western Conference is obviously the more top-heavy, probably loaded one of the two. But I think the East is going to be so fascinating simply because, I mean, I think if the Warriors are healthy, many people probably assume that it's we're going to see the Rockets and the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals. And in the East, I just think that there's so many unknowns, like from seed one through eight. Like, if you look at Boston, you have to question, like, how healthy will they be? Is this their top gear? And with Cleveland – you know, they're just they've only played two games with Kevin Love and Larry Nance and Rodney Hood in the lineup. And Philly's young and they have this turnover rate issue. Washington hasn't had John Wall this time. You know, can they be the best team that he's played with when he's back or will they just kind of keep playing to the level of their opponent? And, you know, Toronto, when you look at them, can they play their bench in the playoffs? And will Lowry and Drozen kind of shake off their bugaboos they've had in the playoffs the last several years and you know with the Pacers I have some questions about how teams are defending Oladipo and the space and how they're hedging on him and you know the Heat's kind of had this offensive surge and Milwaukee's just kind of you know a weird team to me so I think because all those teams have so many questions I think that the Eastern Conference playoffs while there might not be the same level of the top two teams will quite possibly be more interesting just because we don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So you touched on kind of the injuries in the Eastern Conference, and they've injuries have, have kept so many players out of both conferences this year. Um, but specifically, one team that has dealt with a lot has been uh, the 76ers, and Martel Fultz just uh, got an, it got announced earlier today that he was coming back tonight, and the game is actually going on right now, um, and he's playing in it. So what do you think having – a team, so a team like the 76ers is already kind of shaking up the Eastern Conference in a way that people didn't really expect. So what do you think kind of having him back in the, or having him now in the lineup, that first round or that first draft pick, um, what do you think that's going to do for that team and kind of possibly in the playoffs? Right. You, I mean, you really hit the nail on the head there. They really are kind of shaking it up because their starting lineup has the best net rating of any starting lineup in the NBA, minimum 500 minutes, and their defense has just been really solid. I think they're top five in offense and defense since the start of the month. So as far as Fultz goes, really, they don't have a lot of playmakers. That's kind of just Ben Simmons, and he has so much responsibility on his shoulders to create shots for other people. I mean, Embiid can get his once he has the ball, but – Simmons has to set the table for pretty much everybody else. So if they can get Fultz back and he can be, you know, semi-confident, even if his shot isn't necessarily there, just having another person off the bench who can create shots for other people at mm -hmm. a high clip, I think can be a difference maker for them. So do you think that they're potentially going to be a threat to the Cavs if they do end up playing them first round? I know a lot of people are saying that they could potentially be that upset and get the Cavs in the first round. Do you do you kind of buy into that? Well, I, I my prediction on how that seeding would shake up is, yeah, Philly's either going to get a three or a four seed, and I kind of think Cleveland's going to hang out there just because the Pacers have the tougher schedule and Cleveland's kind of hitting their stride offensively. So I don't know if they'll see each other in the first round. But, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that would be – that might be – that's going to be an interesting series. I, I like how they match up and 
and just Philly's overall defense. I think it's a lot that's going to come down to how much will the lack of experience of Embiid and Simmons and that type of a stage matter against, you know, obviously how battle-tested LeBron is. But I don't know that I would pick them to win it, but I think it would definitely be an interesting series. Mm-hmm. Are there any series that you're really looking forward to in the East or even in the West, but probably more specifically the East? Um, I think I would kind of – there's two maybe. Because if the Pacers, I don't think the Pacers are going to get into three or four. Like, I guess maybe I shouldn't say this. The one thing I know about the Pacers is that sometimes I don't know much about the Pacers. So <laughs> they might they might surprise me on this West Coast road trip, and they have the toughest remaining schedule. They, you know, they maybe they edge in there, but I would be surprised by that. So I I kind of like to see what they would do if they play the Sixers. If I have to pick between the Cavs and the Sixers, I'd rather they play the Sixers just because they have the highest turnover rate in the NBA, and the Pacers are. So good in the open floor they have they score the most points off turnovers per 100 they're great off fast breaks and you know they played each other in the tiebreaker game that the Pacers took and they shot Oladipo and Bogdanovich were like a combined five of 32 and they shot like five of 24 from three and despite all of this they even Sabonis got injured Al Jefferson had to play crunch minutes and they still won just because Philly just doesn't take very good care of the ball so I think that could be an interesting matchup just from like a nerdy standpoint but also like the narrative standpoint everybody would turn it into like this referendum on whether you should tank or not and Mm -hmm. that would give us more stuff to write about so (laughs) and then I kind of like to watch the Wizards because I kind of wonder they're struggling a little bit here and if John Wall doesn't come back right away like will they want to fall to seventh like I kind of wonder if they'll want to drop down to seventh and play Boston in the first round just because Boston has so much injury history and you know that that rematch I kind of like the dynamic between those two teams so those are two Mm -hmm. series I would be interested in what about the Western Conference is there anything in there I don't I don't know how much Western Conference you really uh care about but no, um, yeah, I definitely do. I have a question for you guys. I talked to Tara about this a little bit before we started, but like, how happy are you with where Portland's seated right now, getting to play San Antonio in the first round if the playoffs or if the playoffs started today? Like, is that a matchup you guys are pretty excited about? I have such a hard time when when we don't know what's going to happen. I it, it's much easier for me to have an opinion once the matchup actually happens. So I defer that one to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, well, I have kind of two answers to that. I think it depends on Kawhi. I think if he's back, I um, that matchup scares me a little bit um, just because I think if Kawhi does come back, um, he's not going to come back until he's 100%. So if he does end up playing, that means that he's going to come back and can take over the game at any minute. Um, and he, I think he'd be kind of playing with a chip on his shoulder too, especially with all kind of the drama that's been surrounding the Spurs right now with him and everything. So I think that with him in the lineup, um, I'm not a huge fan of that, that series, but with him out of the lineup, um, I'm totally okay with it. I don't have any, too many worries about it. And it would also be a, it would also be another one with a good storyline because it would be the Blazers against LaMarcus. And yeah. uh, the, the thing about LaMarcus that, that I admired about him when he was in Portland and I am admiring about him again right now in his situation in San Antonio is that he was never supposed to be the number one guy, but everybody around him keeps getting injured and he keeps getting left as the guy holding the bag, you know? Um, 
And so that's kind of happening to him in San Antonio right now. He's kind of like the the, the healthiest and the strongest one left standing to lead whatever's left of the team. So I think it would be a, an interesting narrative. And again, yeah, it would give us lots and lots of things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you guys worry about, like, I know right now Aminu and Harkless and Turner, shoot, like, that's kind of been how their offense has surged, that they're shooting really well on those catch-and-shoot threes of late. Like, do you worry that their shooting will regress when the playoffs start, or do you think that that's that they've turned a corner? Um, I don't know. I think that it could go either way uh, because we've seen those players step up in the playoffs, and we've also seen them – kind of drop out in the playoffs so we've seen both sides of that um so I think it's kind of hard to say what I think will happen as far as like how they're gonna do but um I think that they're already they're playing more consistently right now so I think that that's a good sign so it leads me to believe more that they're probably gonna step up in the playoffs but I mean I think that's kind of the thing with Portland is that sometimes they can be very inconsistent um especially that bench so it's kind of hard to say, but definitely, uh, we're definitely hoping that they step it up and continue to play the way that they are. What What's a successful season for the Blazers? Like, is it successful if they win the first round, or is it successful if they push Houston or Golden State in the second round, or like, what are your expectations? What would you say is a successful end of the season? Because this, to me, the Portland's just fascinating. Like, what they've done in the Western Conference is just so is is very interesting to me. It's very surprising, I would say. I really did not expect to find the the Blazers in the three seed, and I feel like a bad fan for not having expected that. But, I, you know, I've talked about this on the other podcast that, you know, uh, I was expecting the other Western Conference teams to be much stronger, and I just thought the whole competition in general was going to be really super tough, and I wasn't anticipating all these injuries. But for me, I think the that Portland really needs to – for sure they need to win a round in the playoffs. And then depending on who they face off against, you know, I think that will that will be determined whether it was a really good season or if it was just like, yeah, that was a, that was a successful season. But I think one of the, when you were asking about the other players whether or not they could continue with their hot shooting that they've been mostly in at least the second half of the shooting. I think one of the things that's different about this year that from other years is that in years past, if the offense couldn't hit shots, Portland had nothing to fall back on. That was it. They were done. They were toast. And we've seen a lot of really low scoring games this year. We've seen that they can turn on the defense and keep their head above water in the way that they never could before. That's kind of the biggest difference I see about how player the Portland team might perform uh, in the playoffs. But I I have a question for you about you said that the Portland is kind of fascinating to you, and I've definitely found Indiana fascinating, and I lo- know Kendall loves Oladipo, <laughs> so we've sort of both had our eye um, on on Indiana, and lo and behold, there's been a lot of talk lately about Nate McMillan in the Coach of the Year conversation, as well as Coach Stotts. So what's your what are your thoughts on whether or not one of those two coaches have a, a chance at being named coach of the year or should they be in the conversation? Yeah, so first let me preface this by saying that I have no idea what coach of the year is actually awarding. 
Like, <laughs> if it's best coach, then it's going to go to Popovich every year. If it's coach of the best team, then it's going to Dan Tony. And, you know, Casey and Stotts have kind of both made more of the same of, like, what they had. And then you have Brad Stevens, who's making most out of the player, out of his current players. He always gets the most out of them, and they're winning against all this adversity. And then you have Nate McMillan, who's kind of exceeding expectations. So, but back to your question, like if I just have to pick between Stotts and McMillan, like earlier, some of the stuff you said about Terry Stotts, I think, is kind of what we always like about Greg Popovich, or to me, why he's the GOAT is sort of that he always he can reinvent a team like they went from having two traditional bigs that were focused on defense to 2014 being a team that's totally focused on ball movement and player movement and just super high efficiency and like this year with Portland what you just said is so true like he's getting Dame and McCollum to buy in on defense and not necessarily that they're stoppers but they're just they're respectable enough that they can be a top eight defensive team and you know that that goes back to your coach getting them to believe that hey you know this is something important that you need to do and like some of the internal development I think you're kind of seeing with Harkless that he's finally starting to look like that three and D threat that I think that you guys were hoping to get and, you know, with Connaughton and Napier, like, they're giving solid contributions off the bench. So, like, a lot of that's there. And then on the other hand, with McMillan, my only questions there would be, like, you have to give him, again, a lot of credit that he's got this team that really plays for and with each other and that, you know, he built this mousetrap for Oladipo. But then you kind of have this question of, I think that Oladipo kind of supplies the cheese, though, in that regard because, like, they're 0-6 without him. And they just – they his impact numbers are just insane like if you look at his defensive numbers I looked at this a couple days ago and like when he isn't on the floor they're equivalent of like a dead last defense and when he's on the floor they're like a top 10 defense so just everything that they do and but what I would say about Nate is like at this time last year he was still holding so strong to like his defensive ethos about we must guard our position so they would play the Raptors and he would have Monte Ellis out there being forced to guard DeMar DeRozan instead of like hiding him on Damari Carroll and this year he's like let all of that go like and that's a big thing for Oladipo because like even against the Sixers they let Boyan Bogdanovich guard Ben Simmons so that Oladipo could kind of hang out on Robert Covington, which that's not a slight at Robert Covington. It's just that he's not going to be creating plays. Like, you're not going to be as active because he's more of catch and shoot. So, like, just that development alone. But then I don't know that I could pick Nate for coach of the year in this regard. Like, because of those things I said, he would definitely be, like, a most improved coach. But then there's just these little teensy things. Like, here lately, teams are really – crowding Oladipo and showing on pick and rolls with him and they really haven't made very many adjustments which really makes me weary for the postseason so if I'm just picking between Stotts and McMillan I, I would have to go with Stotts and that Kendall, what do you think um I think it's fair to talk about them in the the conversation um but I think it's gonna either be Brad Stevens or Dwayne Casey and I, I think that they're just kind of what they're doing this season. I think it's hard to kind of match that. Um, obviously, I think that there's so many other coaches you can talk about that are doing great things that have kind of turned their teams around. But uh, I think it's kind of hard to compete with uh, Stevens and Casey this season. Right. I think I think Casey's going to take it. I just, mm-hmm. just in this comparison between these two, like they're pretty evenly matched, actually. 
Yeah, I think I think Casey will probably get it. Partly also because he's just sort of out ahead of the narrative. And you're right, Caitlin. And this is something that drives me crazy about like all awards given to anybody in the NBA for anything except for the highest scoring award because that's the only one that has any sort of rubric at all around it. But the you know we don't really know what 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 they're voting for. I wish there was an award for like over a series of years, the most patient coach. Cause I think hands down Terry Stotts would get the most patience because he's, he's, you know, waited and he's gently moved this, uh, de- internal development along and a, the team stuck with him long enough so that he could see this internal development through, which is something that not a lot of teams have the patience enough to do as well. Not just the coach's patience, but the team's patience. So, I don't know. I think it's. It, I think that is something that could be rewarded, but because you don't see like you see such incremental change that no one's ever gonna award him for something that just came up so slowly and suddenly. Oh, here we are. We know what we're doing, and I think you know Casey's had so much great coverage, and he deserves the the coverage where you know they said we're gonna reset the culture. Oh, and we're not changing anybody. So that's that's really impressive. Right. They've just, you know, they've remade their like entire playing style from going away from isolation to moving the ball to taking more threes. Like, yeah, I mean, I I think he'll definitely win. Yeah. And men in their 20s are hard to convince to do something differently. I mean, like he has a whole team. If you think about all the guys that, you know, in their 20s and trying to talk them into doing anything, much less getting a whole team full of them to try to change their, you know, all, all change directions and go in one direction at the same time. That's that's a kind of a miracle that he's managed to pull that off. Well, as we move into the playoffs, I'm wondering, Caitlin, what types of things do you watch for, you know, with your, through your coach's daughter's eyes or through your analyst's eyes, what do you watch for as teams take each other on in these extended series that you can't watch for when they just play each other once here and once there? Right. I, I think you nailed it there. Like my favorite thing about the playoffs is game two, because I like <laughs> to see like I like to see what response they're going to have to what happened in the first game. Like, uh-huh. you know, if if let's pretend that the the Pacers play the Cavs, which I'm hoping doesn't happen because I don't really want to watch that again, if I'm being honest. But let's say that they do like if if LeBron ends up placed on Thad and Thad you know he he's made threes this year but not enough not he's not so much of a threat that you would think oh LeBron's not going to roam off of him or hedge off of him and if, if they do that and they're really hedging on Oladipo in the series and they win game one what's Nate McMillan going to come back and do in game two like how is he going to use Thad to find seams in the offense to make it to punish LeBron for either you know coming out higher you know whatever else they're going to do are they going to have more weak side action for Bogdanovich and Darren Collison to prevent good one pass away defense so uh, I just I like game two we'll just put it at that like the adjustments of after what what opponents and coaches are going to do to respond to what happened in game one what do you think Kendall what do you like about playoff basketball um I like that well I think one of my problems with the regular season is that um, some of like the bet, like the top team, and I've talked about this before, where sometimes like the the teams like Golden State and the Cavs, sometimes you it seems like they're just not they don't care as much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like they're saving their energy for the playoffs. So what I like about the playoffs is that 
everyone is giving it their their all. So you're not getting that like, oh, we're kind of like this game doesn't really matter, so we're not going to try that hard. It's like every game matters. I mean, in the regular season, every game should matter too, but to teams like that, they just don't. So in the playoffs, it's just it's just a heightened level of um, of playing, and it's just it's a lot more enjoyable in that sense where it's like it's their last chance basically and they're playing every game um like it's there's a lot on the line for every game so i like watching it for that reason i i really enjoy gamesmanship like when coaches are not just coaching their team out on the floor but looking at long-term strategies which may or may not include like during the year seating certain players or not showing other teams some of your strongest moves on purpose. I just, I love the gamesmanship that's, that's involved, especially when you come to the playoffs, but that's what's going on in my head. Does that really happen? Do you, do you, you know, do you, what are some of the more obvious gamesmanship moves that y'all can think of that you've seen coaches do before? Or is that just something you think I'm making up in my head? <laughs> Cause I do that a lot. <laughs> No, I, I think that happens. Like, I think especially like with teams like Golden State and Cleveland, where it seems, you know, in prior years, like it's almost inevitable that that's going to be a rematch that, you know, maybe in those matchups, they won't play Kevin Love at five very much, if at all, because they don't want Golden State to have the opportunity to, to test what's going to work on that. Or, you know, maybe they won't put LeBron on Draymond because they don't want a Golden State to see how they're going to use him to roam. Like those, those aren't examples that actually happened last year. Cause you know, but necessarily just as examples of what coaches will do when they are definitely thinking that, Hey, we're on a collision course to face that team. Yeah. When you were talking before, I was wondering about when you said your favorite thing is game two, which I thought I loved how you said that, but do do coaches change their strategy as soon as game two? Do you, do they or do they kind of play out the first couple of games and then see what's going to happen? Or do you think they are constantly every game they are rearranging things? Well, I think like a good example would be I guess I would say yes and no because two seasons ago the Hornets and the Heat played each other and the Heat were just if I recall were just absolutely on fire and I think Steve Clifford said. Like, we're not going to overreact to that. We can't change our strategy because, you know, they shot lights out, which I, I think is accurate. And I, I don't remember what ended up having, happening in the very next game after that. But, I mean, I think you have to be realistic. Like, let's pretend Evan Turner comes out in one of you guys' games and shoots, you know, 80% from three and goes four or five from three. Like, as a coach, you're not going to overreact and be like, oh, we're going to change our coverage to that. But if, if, like I said, if the Cavs come out and they're really using – LeBron as a roamer then you might have to alter little things that you do offensively make little tweaks about where you're setting a screen or what you're doing on the weak side to make sure that he's going to be involved in the action so that he can't do that so easily I think on a micro level you'll see little tweaks as soon as game two on a macro mm -hmm. level they're not going to wildly overreact to something that you know might regress back to the norm in game two or game three well, from your mouth to God's ears for Evan Turner shooting 80% from three. Boy, that would sort of just go. <laughs> I know the would have him to do that. Well, actually, he didn't shoot the three that bad when he was here. He barely took any, but he didn't shoot it that poorly, so I shouldn't poke at him on that specific count. 
Yeah, he was there for such such a short time. We've talked about this before. There's a lot of connections between Portland, Indiana, you know, with the McMillan connection and the Sabonis. We haven't asked about Sabonis. How is he doing? Oh, well, he's been out with an ankle injury since they played the Sixers, and he was cleared to return to play against the Heat yesterday at 5, and then when he came out for warm-ups, he tweaked it again, so he's back out, which, you know, kind of hurts the Pacers because they just got Darren Collison back, so that gave them reoriented what they were doing off the bench when Darren went back in the starting lineup and then they're having to play Al Jefferson extended minutes and <laughs> Trevor Booker minutes at five and you know you, you definitely they're going to need Sabonis in the playoffs and they're going to need him healthy so I don't Does know. Does he look at all like his dad to you? Like when he plays or is he yeah, just have a not... completely different style? I mean you'll see little things just the way he impacts the game I mean, I'm not going to say that he's the passer that his dad was, but he definitely has a great feel, and he's polished with what passes he does make. Like, just a quick example, like he and Oladipo are so good in dribble handoff action, and sometimes teams will start to overplay that because Victor's just been so lethal coming downhill off of that that Sabonis will fake it and do a quick backdoor pass to Victor cutting for a dunk. And like, you'll just see like, he can oh, make but that looks quick, awesome. <laughs> yeah. He'll just make like a quick pass and he does, sometimes there'll be no look. And that's like one of my favorite little nerdy things that the Pacers run. And I, I get really excited when it's the backdoor dunk off the dribble handoff when teams overplay it. So you just, you'll see little things like that where I think you can see his dad, but I, I won't say that he's, you know, to that level yet, at least. Well, that answer reminds me of the kind of the last sort of uh, general area of questions that we have for you. Kendall, any more questions about the M NBA situation right now before we move on to the last few questions? Um, no, I think we touched most things. Okay. Well, your description of Sabonis and, and the handoff and what was going on, that it, it got me thinking – you are you write really descriptively about what's going on on the court, and I, that's one of the things I really admire about your writing. And as someone who's really just been learning more about the game for the last like four or five years or so, for my own personal, that's how long it's been that since I've really been trying to dig into the game and understand it and really be able to talk about it. You seem to have kind of a, a natural ability to see what's going on on the play, and so I was just going to kind of ask you some advice for. How do you approach a game when you're trying to think about okay what what is you know what is this team going to provide as a challenge to the Pacers or you know what is this team that I'm watching now really good at and how is how would I expect the Pacers are going to counteract that what just what are some of the ways that you approach how you're looking at um you know how you're preparing yourself when you're writing about games that are coming up and things like that Right. So I would say like here are my most recent piece, like if people head over to my Twitter account, they'll see it pinned just so if they want to read what I'm actually talking about. I'm not necessarily trying to do a shameless plug. I'm just you can do giving, as many I'm shameless giving background you information. That's what the whole purpose of the podcast is, <laughs> is to elevate the voice of women who are doing amazing things in basketball. Everybody go check out Caitlin's stuff. OK, now go ahead. <laughs> OK, so, yeah. So I've talked about it a couple of times so far, like here late in the season. You know, Oladipo's speed and his skilled agility is kind of what the way that he just buzzes right around bigs when they drop in the paint or when guards duck under on screens and he just has no problem getting to the rim. Like, that's partially what made him an all-star. But now, because he's been so good at that, 
when they run pick and roll actions, the defender guarding the screener is kind of stepping out and either hedging or full on out hard showing more here towards the second half of the season than they were at the beginning of the season. And so early on in the year when they were playing the Pistons, anytime Thaddeus Young was the screener, Tobias Harris was showing on all of those. And the Pacers had issues playing with the Pistons other than the one game they came back from 20 points down. Like it just really wasn't a good matchup. And for other reasons beyond this, but I remember I used my notes section in my, on my iPhone a lot. And I just started jotting down like every time they were showing on that and thinking, Hey, you know, I think if people watch these games late in the season, more and more teams are going to do this because Oladipo was really strong. He'll, he'll turn it over. Or sometimes when he tries to get a head full of steam, he gets really aerodynamic, almost like a jockey would when they're trying to prevent wind resistance. And he doesn't necessarily see the floor always so well to make like those left-handed pocket passes. So as early as they played all four games against Detroit before, like even the first or second week of January. And so I just started taking notes on all that. And I'll just record of every time that those types of things happen. And now here it's happened where Boston and Washington late in the year, were doing that more. So then I'll go on to like NBA.com, pull up the league pass and go to those sections where I bookmark those plays and just watch like, okay, what was happening here? And I'll even sometimes I'll pause it and just run my cursor slow. So the video will go slow and see like, is this because Oladipo had his head down? Is it because of where Miles Turner, did he set the screen too high and then have nowhere to go with the ball when he's in that playmaking situation? Or is this because Thad just wasn't hitting shots that it made it more of an incentive for Tobias to show on Oladipo, you know, what exactly was going on? So in a long-term view, that's what I'll do. In a short term, like they played the Bulls and the Bulls made, tied a franchise record and made three-pointers and Miritich launched 16 in a game and I was just like wow how did they launch like how did one player get off that many threes against the Pacers so the next day I clicked it and watched all of his shot attempts and noticed hey they're running this set where Miritich and Markkanen are both high high ball screens setting high ball screens in like a horn on a horn set action and Markkanen would pop and Miritich would cut. And because Sabonis was hedging on those, it was just too hard of a recover for him to get back to Markkanen. And on one occasion, they did switch it and they gave up size. And Miritich was able to shoot it over Corey Joseph. But because it was at least contested, they missed. So the next time they played the Bulls, I pulled up and kind of riffed off that and was like, hey, this is what the Pacers need to do. They haven't been very good at shooting threes. And here's how they were successful covering it. And here's how they weren't. So, you know, that's kind of my process is just to bookmark. If I see something little on a minute, you know, a little bit of a minutia level that I'll mark it and then kind of store those up until the next time they play that opponent or until that's, you know, here in the playoffs with Oladipo until we know that that's going to be a big hot button issue when they get into the first round, if that makes sense. If if, if my method to my madness makes sense. <laughs> So it sounds like you're you're watching for patterns, and then when you see enough of what you think is a pattern, then you start writing it down whenever it happens. And I imagine, and I I'm guessing what you mean by that is like at what point in the game it happens, so that you can then go watch it later, and then you can look at more of like what was happening around this particular action. So you could try to make some guesses on why it was happening over and over again. Right. Exactly. Kind of sum it up. Exactly. Yeah. 
Do you have any favorite resources that you use? You you mentioned, you know, that you would go and you would pull it up. Like, what do you use? Do you use statsnba.com, basketball reference? What are some of your favorite uh, go-to sites for helping you do research? Well, um, there's a site called 3Ball that generates videos for, like, bloggers in case you want to embed them that, like, you can go there and – hit in the player's name and then you can hit like made threes and then you can watch all of Victor's made threes pretty quickly. Like they don't always have it updated like right the day after. Sometimes you have to wait a while, but that's pretty useful. What's that called again? Three ball. It's like three ball. Okay. Three ball. IMO.com. Three ball. And then if you go over to NBA.com and you just hit like the box scores, if it's something simple like me wanting to watch Miritich's threes, you just go to the box score and click the link and then they'll pull up all those videos and you can watch them. Like, and then just like learning more about the game, I really like a Twitter account that's um, B-Ball Immersion. I love Basketball Dictionary. Um, just a lot of these film room guys, the more you follow them, they retweet other people's film room stuff. So you'll just, you'll learn a lot about set actions. If you're not somebody that's really grown up around the game your whole life. I think those are really good accounts where you can just learn more about how teams are creating misdirection or what they're doing on the off ball. Like I know Dylan Murphy who runs um, the basketball dictionary where they'll describe different like pick and roll coverages. He gave this tip on another podcast I was listening to where he said, don't watch the ball. Like when, if you want to learn more about the game, watch what the other players are doing. And I think that's really good advice just to see like, you know, in the Pacers case, how is Boyan Bogdanovich reading a curl screen? Like, is he going around the curlers? Is he doing a quick back door? Like just what the Pacers are getting off of those types of actions that generates open shots for them. Those are great resources. And some of them I haven't heard of before. So we will definitely look those up and write them down and link to them in the, uh, uh, listening them into the notes for the show. Kendall, do you want to ask the last question? Yeah. So we always like to end our, um, our interviews on this podcast, kind of asking what women in sports inspires you. So like, are there any, um, it can be someone that you've dealt with in your personal life. It can just be someone in the industry that you, um, that really inspires you that you look up to, but is there any women in particular that really stand out to you? Right. I, th- I think definitely too. Whitney Medworth here at SB nation. She's the assistant editor like it's always a pleasure. I've gotten to work with her a couple times because she's also a Pacer fan. So we get we've gone on the Limited Upside podcast that's hosted by Mike Prada and Ben Epstein a few times and just I think like her writing style is so uniquely hers. She writes those B-side columns and it's like impossible not to love whatever she loves about the NBA. Like just and so I'm very envious that she has that sort of a unique writing voice and that I'm also cognizant of the fact that, you know, you guys here are trying to elevate the voices of women on an NBA podcast, but there's not a lot of female voices or that get asked to be guests on other podcasts. So the fact that Mike and Ben have had two on a few times whenever we've gotten to go on there, I, I, that's special to me. And then also um, Haley O'Shaughnessy at The Ringer. Everyone should definitely follow her. She's like basically life goals for me she's so thoughtful and smart with her writing and she's extremely versatile too like she was one of the few people that totally nailed that the Pacers could unlock Victor Oladipo and nobody else thought that they would and then recently she wrote a feature on the inside world of NBA barbers that like you don't know that you need until you read it so both of them are great follows if people are looking for more NBA content Whitney's um, Twitter's at at it's Whitney and Haley O'Shaughnessy, I think is Haley or something. 
but if you head over to the ringer you'll always find her work so now talking about social media how can people find you and your work right my handle is at c2 underscore cooper and then it's caitlin cooper and then all my stuff is always at indie cornrows if you head over there i'm usually on there two or three times a week with either you know something a little bit more analytical or here down the stretch i've been writing a lot of standings watch pieces because that's been so fluid in the eastern conference so people can usually find those too Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, getting us caught up on a lot of the stuff that's going on in the East. We really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with us. That's going to do it for this edition of Women's Hoops and Talks, the What Podcast. We are, again, hosted by Blazer's Edge on the Almighty Baller Radio Network. If you like what you heard, please go find Blazer's Edge Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and rate, rate and review and do all that good stuff. If you just want to get notified when the What Podcast episodes dropped, you can follow us on Twitter at Hoops and Talks. Every time we post a new episode, we will put it out on that Twitter feed. I am on Twitter at TCBBigs, and Kendall is at KendallBennett16. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical.